0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Brothers Creed podcast where we talk about motivation, experiences,
1: and exploring the world around us. We're the Thomas Brothers and I'm Jared. And I'm Ethan. And today we're going to be talking about impactful leaders from history. Uh, This is a really cool uh, topic and going to be a good episode. We're going to kind of Jared and I both picked some of our, our favorite leaders from history, uh, maybe some ancient and some a little bit more recent, and kind of some of the things that they did, some of the, the cool uh, leadership tactics and styles and, and some of the characteristics that they portrayed. So it's going to be a good one. So let's get into it. Let's do it. You can't
2: climb the ladder of success with your hands in the pocket. We will not go quietly into the night.
1: They tell me you're a man true grit. I
2: am the one who knocks.
1: Don't ever tell me what I can't do, ever.
2: That's how winning is done.
0: Okay, all right, we have a good episode for you guys today. We are deriving a little bit of our inspiration from leaders in history, and it's so interesting looking back on people's lives and um, the impact that they can make. And and uh, some of the things that they did over their lifetimes. And so one of the per- people that I wanted to cover today was uh, a man that uh, had a huge impact on the world, I, I believe, and his name was Winston Churchill. Uh, for those of you who don't know, he, he was the prime minister in Great Britain during World War II, uh, actually from the years from 1940 to 1945, and then uh, again from f- 1951 to 1955. And so uh, Winston Churchill... He's actually half American. His mom was uh, the son of a mom was the daughter of a wealthy stockbroker uh, in America. And you know, during his youth, apparently, he, he actually had a, a pretty sad upbringing. Uh, he was neglected as a child. He actually got um, poor grades in school, and that made his dad put him into a military academy. And um, it took him three years to. At three, excuse me three tries to pass the entry ex- exam to the royal military college because he wanted to get in there um, after his you know his uh, traditional like studies uh, to get into a college uh, and once he did he actually did really well in, in, in college and then he soon entered War, World War one and so uh, at the time in World War one really the only action that was going on well, <clears throat> well he wanted to excuse me he, he wanted to really explore like the world. And he was a, a journalist. Uh, and so he did kind of both. He was a soldier and a journalist and his articles that he wrote got to pretty popular and it gave him lots of attention throughout the war. And then in 1899, um, um, he, he resigned from his, uh, military experience, uh, to enter the political realm. So this is a little bit before World War One, obviously. Uh, but he, So he spent some time in the military. He actually goes in and out of the military quite a bit. And so uh, he, he went out. Then he um, started a job as at a newspaper um, <laughs> after a failed bid for local office. And then uh, within a few months after his arrival uh, at his reporting location, uh, he was actually taken captor, captive by... Um, by some uh, they' called they were called booers and he actually rescued an armored train that was being ambushed but he got captured in the process so it kind of made him like a hero you know interesting and uh, that then that helped kind of launch his uh, his political career even more than it did prior and so he he uh, was able to uh, w- Go for a second bid. He won. He won. He started out as conservative. Uh, some of later in his life, he, he kind of leaned more a little bit towards more the liberal party, uh, and he was kind of back and forth a little bit. But uh, he he was definitely w- known for giving his speeches, uh, his prepared speeches. In fact, is what uh, he was most known for, or they call those set speeches. Um, one of his fellow parliament members said uh, he carried. Heavy, but not very mobile guns, meaning that when he was prepared to talk, he could speak well, but when he, when it came to just conversational or just talking off the cuff, he didn't do very well with that. Uh, he was a, a good orator, but he actually had a speech impediment um, that he had to overcome. He couldn't say his S's. And Later, I'll, I'll play a little bit of a clip of some of the stuff that he said, um, and it's it, it interesting to hear um, just how he talked and... and uh, you know, just at in the clip, you can kind of feel that uh, motivation that he inspired in many people. So uh, in his early career, you know, he, he was in politics for a time. Um, in 1911, uh, he began to realize the importance of France and how Britain would need to be at France's side uh, should they ever enter into a war with Germany. And this is kind of in War, war I. Uh He argued in in the Parliament for the biggest increase in spending on the military navy in British history, so isn't that that's pretty wild if you think about it? Because British, the British Navy has historically been like a huge crown jewel of of, of Great Britain, and so to argue for the giant spending bill was, was good because he saw it coming, he saw this war coming, and uh, because of his vigilance and feelings on the matter, Britain was ready for the war when it did start in August of nineteen fourteen. And this is World War One. World War One, yeah. Uh, because of some of the disagreements with generals, I mean, there's so much st- history here. This is a, 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 some broad, broad strokes, but he had some disagreements with some generals and some politicians. There were some failed campaigns, uh, and he was demoted to a lower office um, within the, the, the government office that he had, and he actually ended up dropping out and going to join the army, uh, where he actually joined the Western Front for a time, Uh, And then later he came back out uh, and joined the parliament again. Uh, When they let him back in, it was in 1917 and they, they put him in as minister of munitions. So they kind of tucked him away in a corner almost, but really at that part of, I admire about him in this sense was that even kind of tucked away in a, in a corner, he was able to help with the development of the tank, which helped turn the tide of the war. And, uh, so I, I like that aspect of him that he strove for greatness wherever he was. And what I like about his story is that it wasn't just like a direct path to greatness. He had setbacks. He got, you know, pushed out of parliament. He had, you know, people saying bad things about him. He was, uh, you know, he just had so many ups and downs. And he just kept going and kept trying to be uh, excellent, excellent. Uh, in every situation and in every position that he was in in 1940, he put in his, um, he was put in as prime minister. And at this point, Hitler and the Nazi war machine was tearing through Europe. France fell and 250,000 British soldiers were barely able to escape from Dunkirk, which was just right across the channel. Uh,
1: there's a movie about that.
0: Yeah, there is a movie about that. And they're, and they're just basically, they were backed up against the, <laughs> they're on the beaches of Dunkirk. The German, the Nazis were moving in. And then there was submarines, U-boats all in the in the harbor there. And there's and just like, they were trapped on both sides and they had nothing to do. So that was when they actually, um, there was a, a big campaign to send everybody, a uh, bunch of people from England. They got in their private boats and stuff like that. They went over and started rescuing a bunch of soldiers. And that was a kind of a, a cool thing where the citizens Actually went to rescue the soldiers and bring them back, so that's kind of cool. <clears throat> um, Winston kept motivating his people. Uh, he's one of the famous things he says: "Say we shall not flag or fail. Uh, we shall not. We shall go on to the end. We shall defend our island, whatsoever the cost may be. We shall never surrender." And I just think that was cool. And in fact, I have one of his speeches here that um, is kind of interesting. I want to play this uh, briefly for for everyone to hear.
2: when Napoleon laid Boulogne for a year with his flat-bottomed boats and his grand army, he was told by someone there are bitter weeds in England. There are certainly a great many more of them since the British Expeditionary Force returned. Sir, I have myself full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, and if the best arrangements are made, as they are being made we should prove ourselves once more able to defend our island home to ride out the storm of war and to outlive the menace of tyranny if necessary for years if necessary alone at any rate that is what we are going to try to do that is the resolve of his majesty's government every man of them that is the will of parliament and the nation The British Empire and the French Republic, linked together in their cause and in their need, will defend to the death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island whatever the cost may be we shall fight on the beaches we shall fight on the landing grounds we shall fight in the fields and in the streets we shall fight in the hills we shall never surrender and if which I do not for a moment believe this island or large part of it were subjugated and starving then our Empire beyond the seas armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old.
0: So, uh, some of that was hard to hard to exactly understand, but um, it was uh, pretty cool. Uh, to hear that part where he's talking about fight in the streets, we'll fight on the oceans, fight on the seas, we'll fight to the death, fighting our farms. Yeah, just uh, motivating the people to keep fighting. One of the interesting things about Winston Churchill, I think, one of the most impactful things was, is that he, Great Britain was the last like stronghold in Europe at the time. Hitler had conquered everything else, and it was between Russia. He had a two front war between Russia and Great Britain. And uh, there was another parliament member member by the name of Halifax who wanted to make peace with Hitler. And Hitler's term, he probably would have been very amenable to that because he didn't want to, Hitler did not want to fight a war on two different fronts. So if he had made peace with Great Britain, then he would have only had to fight Russia and he would have just put all his forces towards Russia. And so um it was very critical and, and Winston Churchill was a staunch advocate of uh the Nazis being tyrannical dictatorship uh the, against them and so uh that was a, a major contribution that he had is that imagine how things would have been differently if Great Britain had made peace with Hitler uh and then you know he would have been you know, would have had to fight them and then he would have had to go somewhere else. And so, and if, I I, well, I think we, we got pulled into the war with Japan and, and then to help defend Great Britain. But if Great Britain was at peace, maybe we wouldn't have come so quickly. But we did, France did get taken over. So it's hard to say what exactly would have happened, but, um, you know. Yeah,
1: and I know we were providing uh relief and aid and and assistance and everything to the war effort before we ever joined. Yeah,
0: what was the, when they, who was the uh the british um during the the revolutionary war the france france helped us out during the revolutionary war america mm-hmm. out what was the 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 general's name um the french general's name oh i can't remember but then Laf- lafayette lafayette yeah and always. and then when we went back to help them i think the one of the generals said you know lafayette here's uh here's things coming back around. Now we're here. Now we're here. we're here. Lafayette or something like that. He said something to that effect. That, that was kind of cool. Uh, just, you know, to keep in mind that history and the, like, well, you guys helped us when we needed it. And now we're back we're to help you, when you
1: paying need it need forward. It. Yeah, exactly.
0: So great. Um, you know, there's so much to Winston Churchill and his history, but I think like he was such a critical, p- p- pivotal and critical person in that point of history to really, um, uh, stop the, the Nazi machine and, glad that uh, glad that he did
1: yeah for sure that's great um yeah i've heard lots of different stories about him he was a very interesting guy um lots of different stuff so uh one of the the leaders that um that i'm going to talk about is maybe more of an, an ancient leader um and his name was was Lucius Quintus uh Cincinnatus Right. And this is in the year 500 to 430 BC. So this was a while ago. Right. And um, if you think of it, Julius Caesar died in, I think, 44 BC. So this is like 400 years before Julius Caesar and the the mass of the Roman Empire. So this was maybe more towards the beginning portion. Of the Roman Empire <clears throat> and the Romans uh, altogether. So uh, there was this man, was na- his name was Cincinnatus, and he lived on a little farm uh, not far from the city of Rome. Uh, he had once been very well-known and very rich, uh, but due to some different circumstances and one of his, he had a wayward son that did got into some stuff, uh, basically he lost all of, uh, they lost all of their wealth. And so he was very poor um, and was just basically working this farm to survive, his little farm. Um, He was a very, very wise man, uh, and everyone trusted him. All the people just loved him. Um, And they always asked him for advice when they got in trouble or they didn't know what to do, and the neighbors would always say, go tell Cincinnatus, he'll help you, he'll help you, he'll tell you what to do. Um, so he was very known for being uh, very charismatic and, and smart. So uh, they they kind of, uh, up in the mountains uh, away from Rome, there were several uh, tribes. They were very fierce. They called them half-wild men, kind of like uh, barbarians, right, that lived up in the, uh, the mountains ab- above Rome. Um, they, the story goes, I mean, this was a while ago, so uh, the story goes that they... Um, they persuaded another tribe to kind of of, of warriors to band together to attack uh, Rome. And they said that they would tear down the walls of Rome and burn the houses and kill all the men and make slaves of the women and children, is what these, these barbarian tribes told, uh, said of Rome. And so at first, the, the Romans were they were a pretty proud bunch, right? Uh, throughout most of history, they were pretty proud. Uh, they like to consider themselves brave and uh, did not think that there was much danger with these barbarians. So uh, at this point in time, every man in Rome, every abled man in Rome was a soldier. And so uh, they put together the Roman army and they marched out of Rome to, uh, up to the mountains to basically destroy this or quell this uh, this little band of barbarians, tribal <laughs> band of barbarians, right? And so the whole army went up there. <clears throat> At this point, I'm not sure how, how big the army was, but it doesn't really matter. Um, everybody thought it would be a very easy, quick victory to drive these these uh, mountain men back into the the mountains where they belonged and to slaughter a lot of them and just kind of dishearten them and make sure that they knew who was, who was boss. So um, all of the men in the city, all of the able-bodied men went off to this war, and they left back um, some... Very uh, slim uh, amount of of guards for like the gate or whatever else, and then uh, the old men and the women and the children. They called them the white-haired men. Um, so the ones who are just they were just they're 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 the old wise. The men. The white-haired <clears throat> men. That's funny. um. So uh, after a while, um, one morning there was the uh, one of the guards on the gate saw five horsemen riding like crazy. Back to the gate, they recognized the men, recognized the horses, and so they raised the gate and they let the, let them in. Um, and they basically said, "What happened? What you know?" And they were all they were all looked like they had just come from battle. They were all bloody, and their horses were bloody. And they um, basically they told um, that they they got off their horses and they told the story of what had happened. They said yesterday uh, when the army got there um our army was marching through a narrow valley between two very steep mountains and um basically it was like cliffs on both sides but it was very narrow they could only march like 3 or 4 guys uh, abreast at a time and so they were marching through this narrow um the whole army through this narrow valley and they got ambushed um it says, all at once, thousands of savage men sprang out from amongst the rocks before us and above us and behind us. And they blocked up the way. Um, oh, they had blocked up the way, and the pass was so narrow that we could not, we could not fight. And so basically it was talking about, I mean, there was pe- they would throw stuff down on the soldiers from the top of the cliffs, and they had blocked off one way, know, with, maybe with rocks or whatever else, and, and they just they couldn't go anywhere. The whole army was basically blocked. Um, and uh, the guy said, uh, one of the horsemen said that we tried to come back. There was 10 of us that jumped on our horses and started riding. And as we were riding, they were throwing spears and rocks at us through the uh, off the cliffs and he said only five of us got through out of the ten riders um and we, we came back and basically they said whom can we send but the guards and the boys like the oh, so it says um the white-haired fathers is what it says they they said what shall we do I mean the entire Roman army is is trapped uh, what shall we do who can we send but the the guards and the boys because that's all that they had yeah um who, and they said, and who is wise enough to lead them and save Rome? Um, so they all kind of shook their head, and then one of the people said, uh, send for Cincinnatus, um, because he was kind of a, he was an older guy, and he and he wasn't part of the, the army at this time. He was just a poor person living on the outskirts of Rome. Uh, send for Cincinnatus, he will help us. So the, they sent some, some men out to Cincinnatus, and he was in his field plowing, the field uh, when these men came up to him, um, he stopped and greeted them kindly and waiting, waited for them to speak. Uh, so they told him basically what had happened, how the Roman army was was entrapped in the mountain pass and that they they didn't have um, they didn't have people that I mean they, they didn't have a whole other army to go up and get them. So they said the people of Rome uh, make you their ruler and the ruler of the city to do everything as you choose. And the fathers bid you come out at once and go against our enemies, the fierce men of the mountains. So basically they told him that. They're like, look, Rome is yours. You are the only one that we that anybody trusts to figure out this situation, to how to get these soldiers back. Um, And so they said, everything is yours. Basically they just made him emperor, right? They gave him all the power to do anything that he needed to do to go and, and save the army.
0: Also, that's pretty. That'd be a pretty cool title to have. Is the a fierce man of the mountains? Yeah, yeah, I kind of like
1: <laughs> kind of like that. Um, so he he left his he left his plow where it was, um, and he he went off to the city. Um, as he passed through the streets, he gave uh, he gave orders as to what should be done. Uh, some of the people were very afraid, uh, and he kind of was was help calming people. Uh, he. He armed the guards, all the guards that were left. He armed the guards and the boys, and he went to fight the fierce men of the mountains um, and to free the trapped Roman army. So we don't know exactly what happened in the fight. History maybe over the past 2,500 years has uh, changed a little bit. Um, What's what's
0: the tall tale version?
1: (laughs) Well, basically it just says, uh, there's probably different accounts, but it just says after a few days... Um, was great joy in Rome. Actually, one of the tall tale versions is Cincinnatus actually said, he said, I will bring them back. He, he, he said, I will go and bring them back in a day, is what he told them. Really? Um, so, but this one says, you know, within a, f- a few days after, uh, there was great joy in Rome. There was good news from Cincinnatus. The men of the mountain had been beaten with great loss. They had been driven back into their own place. Um, and now the entire Roman army with the boys and the guards that had gone to save them, were coming home, banners flying, shouting victories. Um, and at their head rode Cincinnatus. He had saved Rome. Um, at this point he was still, I mean he was the savior of Rome. Um, he could have he could have made himself king. He, 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 his word would have been, you know like law at that point i mean he had the entire army behind him he had everything that he he could have he could have wanted uh, he could have just lifted his finger and 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 said do this do this do that um, but the people were very grateful and once he once the parties and the festivities and everything were done he imme- immediately gave back his power to the white-haired roman fathers he went back to his farm and to his plow that was standing in the field so He had been the ruler of Rome for 16 days. Wow, that's cool. And then he gave it all back, gave it all back to the people. Yeah. Um. And so... Well, they say
0: heavy is the head that wears the crown. Maybe he just didn't want all that responsibility. He's like, I've done my civic duty, I'm done.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting. A lot of times, actually in high school, I learned about Cincinnatus and they compared him to George Washington. Yeah. And the fact that... Um, in time of turmoil and, and, and strife for a, a, a country, um, the military general, the person who basically can control all the military, has the potential to r- rule, um, And uh, but he didn't.
0: He, he he was president for one term, and then he set it aside. and he said, someone else's turn. Yep. Yeah. So. Interesting. Cool. Yeah, I like that one. That's, a, that's an interesting story. Um one of the ones that I have was I, I did a Julius Caesar which is several years later in Rome several hundred years later Yeah so we're talking he was born in 100 uh 100 BC so several hundred years later like what 300 years 300 later? yeah, yeah. Or, or 400 years later cuz his years was in 500 yeah right? 500 to 430 so, uh, There's so much on Julius Caesar. I mean there's like entire and there's books written about him, so I'm going to give kind of a bridged version, obviously, but uh, just some of the the highlights of what this guy did. So he was the last dictator of the Roman Republic, and so um, his father and mother were wealthy families, so he he kind of grew up at a certain status. In 60 B.C., Caesar entered into an unofficial political alliance with Crassus, a military general and politician, uh, cited as the wealthiest man in Roman history, so he aligned himself with these rich, like people. And actually, from what I read, is it was like a secret alliance. It's like a secret combination alliance with these rich um, g- generals and whatnot, and a couple, one or two other guys. And, and they basically had most held most of the power uh, in the Roman Republic.
1: S- side note: So I did some research. One of the people I was going to do was uh, Spartacus. Mm-hmm. Right, who held the who who led the rebellion for the gladiatory slaves? Mm-hmm. There was like a big slave rebellion in yeah. in Rome, and Spartacus led that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Crassus was one of the guys that like he basically paid for an army to quell the rebellion with his own money because he was so rich. Yeah, so it's crazy. Sidebar.
0: Yeah, but go I, ahead. Yeah, that that is wild. Um, and so um, you know Caesar. Well, the the Kraus, the next one here I have, Kraus died in 53 BC. uh, It actually caused a civil war within Rome uh, with another uh, prominent person in the parliament. I think his name was Pompey. And Caesar ultimately won this civil war. uh, But during the civil war, he was appointed as dictator, uh, this is the Latin here, preputio, which is dictator in perpetuity. Uh, after the Civil War ended, though, he retained those dictatorship powers, which were unique special powers uh, that they, they, they granted him. So uh, he kept that uh, those powers. Uh, he was in his life. He was one of the. He was a great military um, commander and strategist. Uh, one of his greatest achievements was the conquest of the Gauls. Uh, at the time, it was called the Gauls, or actually today's modern day France and Britannica, uh, who were equally, and some of those forces that he faced, they were in some some ways equally matched a fighting force. Uh, and he used kind of some of the tribe's divisions and uh, to kind of pit them against each other. And, uh, and he conquered that region in 50 BC. And so that was kind of one of his really well-known achievements. Another thing that some of the military achievements he's known for is the conquest he defeated the Egyptian pharaoh uh Potomaly the 13th it looks like in battle in the battle of the Nile in 47 BC and he that caused uh, and he installed Cleopatra as the queen of e- Egypt and actually
1: Julius cl- Caesar did
0: yeah and actually he had a he he had a kid a child with Cleopatra hmm so i've actually I actually never knew that. I, apparently, there's several movies about that, dramatizing that. They were kind of like older movies, but Julius Caesar and Cleopatra had like a love interest, and they had a child, obviously. But it's just kind of the two different worlds—a Roman, you know, emperor, and then she is the queen of like Egypt, and you know, the Egypt is, you know, this great c- civilization. So it's kind of a, a interesting mix of the two worlds, you know. Now he he was married in his. He he was I think he married and divorced at least two or three times, uh, back in Rome. But he had a love child with Cleopatra, who was supposedly known for her beauty, uh, amongst other things. So, a uh, pretty cool piece of history that I did I was not aware of. I think a lot of people might be aware of that, but uh, I was I thought that was cool. Uh, the new calendar. So that was one another thing he put into effect is that the old Roman calendar was like really politically based and it wasn't very good. So. Uh, Julius Caesar replaced the Roman replaced the Roman calendar with one based off of the Egyptian calendar, which was regulated by the sun. Now he set the length of the year to 365.25 days by adding an additional inter, they call it an intercalary day at the end of February every fourth year. So that's like a, a leap it's year. Uh, Julian count cal- the Julian calendar started on the January 1st of January 45 BC. And it remained the predominant calendar in most of Europe till the Gregorian calendar, the most widely used uh, in today's world, slightly refined it by making a .002% correction in the length of the year. So just such a minor um, correction, but you really, if you think about our calendar, it brings its roots back to Julius Caesar and adopting that uh, Egyptian calendar, which you know the Egyptians' mathematics. The stars, the rotations of the sun, they were all about that. And so I I thought that was kind of cool. I never really knew the history of the Gregorian calendar and and all that. Um, The last one I have here is uh, on the day of his death, uh, Calpurnia, which was his wife in Rome, uh, woke up after seeing a terrible dream. She had dreamt that she was holding Caesar's dead body in her arms. So she begged Caesar not to leave the house that day. He ignored her warning and went to the Senate anyway. He was stabbed to death that day at least 23 times uh, by people who had betrayed him. Apparently, it was over 60 men who had been involved in the betrayal. Obviously, all of, them, all of them didn't stab him, but they were all involved in the betrayal of Julius Caesar. So the moral there is, if your wife tells you not to go to work, listen to her.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going to stay home today and so one th- last
0: thing here is I thought it was a cool one of uh, Julius Caesar's well known sayings was he would say veni vidi vi- vici which means I came I saw I conquered I always thought that was just this Jay-Z thing <laughs> <laughs> wasn't that Linkin Park Jay-Z song he says I came I saw I conquered yeah, I was like I think so it's like hey, that sounds familiar oh that's actually not Jay-Z that's, that's uh, Julius, Julius Caesar, Caesar. so kind of cool now you can uh, you can spout that off to your friends like hey did you know that this is not Jay-Z Anyway, uh, really inspirational life. He did a lot. He did a lot for actually the veterans of the wars. He did a lot for um, land ownership in the area. He was, um, you know, he he was he was a a great ruler, and he did a lot for the people, the just the lay people at the time. And uh, just interesting to look back on someone's life and, and see how much impact they can have on different things, and some of those things even still bleed through today, like the calendar.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's crazy how like history. You look back at history and you're like, oh, that's why we do it that way. That's really cool. Um, so the last the last person that I, I wanted to talk about is is uh, I would maybe describe him as, as one of the fierce men of the mountains, right? Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt. Um, he uh, unexpectedly became the twenty sixth president of the United States on September nineteen. Um, after the assassination of William McKinley, um, he was uh, young and physically robust, they said. Not like in a fat way, but in like a jacked way. Like a jacked way, <laughs> right? Uh, at age 43, he was the youngest president. Um, actually, I think he was 42 when he went into office, but then quickly turned 43. So 43 years old as a president. I mean, that's pretty young.
0: How old was Kennedy. Wasn't Kennedy one of the other ones?
1: I mean, he was. Be- he, this was at his time. I mean, he was yeah. before Kennedy, obviously. But um, yeah, yeah. So they say that he brought a whole new energy to the to the White House. Um, he he was known as Teddy uh, as a kid, and he was actually a very frail and sickly little boy. Uh, but as a teenager, he started following a, a program of gymnastics and weightlifting to build his strength. It says. Um, which, which is kind of interesting And that's probably where he built a lot of his, his size and, and strength from Cool. Um, so upon graduation from Harvard in 1880 uh, Roosevelt married um, Alice Hathaway Lee And uh, then he, he actually entered into law school uh, He actually dropped out of law school after a year To enter into public service uh, He was elected to the New York State Assembly At age 23 And served two terms there um, wow, that's young. Yeah. Both his wife and his mother died on the same day in 1884. Of what? Um, it didn't say. But, Jeez. I mean, probably sickness or something man. else. Yeah, so. Um, and a grieving Roosevelt spent the next two years on a ranch he owned in the badlands of the Dakota Territory, where he hunted big big game, drove cattle, and worked as a frontier sheriff. <laughs> that's cool so he he had this you know his wife died and his mother died on the same day and he's just like i need a couple years right so he just went out and just like was a man he was a mountain man for <laughs> for two years just driving cattle and being a, a sheriff of the of the badlands in the dakota territory at that time what year is this uh that's 1884 oh okay so yeah um so upon returning to New York, uh, he married actually his childhood sweetheart, Edith Kermit Caro, um, and they had six children together, um, including they had one. He had one daughter from his first marriage um, to his first wife. So in 1895, Roosevelt became the president of the New York Board of Police Commissioners, and um. In 1897, William McKinley named him as the Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Navy. Um, So he was the Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Navy. And upon the outbreak of the Spanish-American War in 1898, Roosevelt left his post as the Navy Secretary to become a colonel in the first U.S. volunteer, Volunteer Cavalry known as the Rough Riders.
0: <laughs> really,
1: yeah. volunteer oh, the first was volunteer volunteer cavalry. Yep, known as the Rough Riders, and so he became a colonel in that uh, in that cavalry, in the colonel in the Rough Riders. So once in Cuba, so this was they 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 were in Cuba, I guess. Uh, Roosevelt led the Rough Riders in a brave, costly uphill charge in the Battle of San Juan. Uh, and he returned as one of the war's most visible heroes. So he like led this charge, this impossible charge up this hill to capture this hill. and they took it and it was like so, so crazy that he was like infamous for it. Cool. So um, he ended up uh, you know coming back and a couple of different things happened, but he ended up being um, after William McKinley was uh, assassinated, he became the president. Um and uh a couple different facts about him. Um early in his presidency, Teddy Roosevelt sparked a scandal where he actually invited an African American educator, Booker T. Washington, to dine with him and his family. He was the first president to ever entertain a black man in the White House.
0: Which is kinda of interesting. Even before even after Abe Lincoln.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um another one was uh Roosevelt uh, was the first president to ever win a Nobel Peace Prize. Um which is kind of cool. He actually won the Nobel Peace Prize because uh he adopted an aggressive foreign policy. Um and he actually convinced Japan and Russia to attend a peace conference during the I think there was like a they called it the jap Japo-Russo um, uh, War or something like that. And basically he uh, commissioned uh, or convinced Japan and Russia to come to a treaty. And so he got really? Nobel, no Nobel Peace Prize for that. So uh, another cool fact is he actually went blind after a boxing injury in the White House. So whenever he was... Uh, president he continued his hobby of boxing well into his presidency and he got hit in the side of the the side of the face and it actually detached one of his retina and he went one of his eyes yeah and so he went blind in one eye while he was president from a boxing injury did it come back no (laughs) and so and a cool thing is so uh he suffered from a detached retina in about in 1908 and stopped fighting he then switched to jujitsu instead
0: (laughs) In no way yeah that's so that was really cool. Well, um, I heard that he read books like they were going out of style. I mean, he would read so many books. Uh, he was such a wise man and that he would just absorb so much information. I think he was like a speed reader. He had like a photographic memory. He did.
1: He claimed to have a photographic memory, and um, s- some accounts said that he could remember poems like verbatim that he had read in books like 10 years ago. Um, so, He definitely uh, was a pretty smart guy. Um, Cool. Last story. Actually, you've told this story before, um, but it's the one where he was uh, October fourteenth, 1912. He was campaigning in Wisconsin, and he was uh, shot by a a saloon keeper named John Flaming Shrink. Um, The bullet was lodged into his chest after penetrating his eyeglasses case and then passing through his 50-page speech that he had well, he had a 25-page speech that he folded in half, and it went through there, and then it lodged into his chest. Um, and it said that... Uh, um, that the the Shrank, the guy who shot him, was immediately disarmed, captured, and might have been lynched had Roosevelt not shouted uh, for Shrank to remain unharmed. Uh, he assured the crowd that he was all right, and he ordered the police, to, the police to take Shrank and to make sure no violence was done to him. And as an experienced hunter and anatomist, Roosevelt, um, uh, basically, he concluded that since he was not coughing up blood, the bullet had not, reached, not yet reached his lungs, so he figured he was okay. So he declined the suggestion to go to the hospital immediately and said he delivered his scheduled speech with blood seeping into his shirt. He spoke for ninety minutes before completing his speech, accepting and then accepting medical attention. Um, His opening comment to the speech was, "Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know whether you fully understand that I have been shot, but it takes more than that to kill a bull moose." (laughs) (laughs) And then, and then he went on to give a. And then he went on to give a speech. So it's pretty ba. Yeah, I mean, I just thought it was a really cool story um, about somebody who. Just is, has experienced a lot, um, you know. I think sometimes in life we're like, man, you know. I we we talked on a, on another episode about kind of wasting time, and it's like you know, these guys, some of these people that we look back at, and and maybe I mean the world is a different place now than it was then, but it's like there's no wasting time. It's just like they just action and they just lived a full life of of lots of different things. So but
0: we we have to think about the back too, though, is it? That- You've got a full life ahead of you too, man. Like, oh yeah, if you had, and also their life expectancy was less back. Then. I mean, he was like in the what he what did he was like in the Chamber of Commerce when he was like twenty three. Heck, yeah. most of the twenty three year olds nowadays are like taking selfies on <laughs> smoking like, weed you and you just
1: screwing around, <laughs> living doing, in mom know, dad's basement.
0: Yeah, like, there's a lot of thirty year olds doing that. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> so it's just kind of like, you know, I think that there's something to be said about stepping up and into the plate. And he was such a, a rough and tough wilderness man that, you know, in contrast to, you know, kind of what we have, what we've had recently is yeah. really city boys.
1: <laughs> he would have been a, I think he would have been a cool guy uh, to like But George meet. Bush was
0: like that too, though. George Bush, like he would go out and like uh, on Camp David and he would just be like cutting down trees with chainsaws and stuff. Oh, and He'd yeah. be out like, he, he was a farmer. He, he was like a,
1: he was a rancher. He was a rancher. And yeah. so
0: he was kind of like that a little bit and he was a kind of a country boy type thing.
1: George W Bush George W Bush yeah yeah, yeah. so I, I think we can look back and we look at the examples of some of these people and uh, they're not perfect at all you know they they definitely had positives and negatives and did things that were great and they probably did some things that were not so great but um, you know we can look back and we can attribute uh, some of the things that we have today and the, 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 the way that they acted we can implement that in our lives and and I'm sure we can make changes.
0: Yeah, and look back and, you know, not everybody's perfect in history, but we can learn from the good things that people do. Yep. And we can try to emulate those in our own life and try to improve the world around us based off of some of the great things that people have done. And we can use that as inspiration. If I look back and I see someone who did something that was positive in the past, I can use that inspiration to be a better person today. And I feel like that would, uh, that even if that person wasn't all good. I mean, nobody's all good, you know? Yeah. So it's cool to kind of do some of that research.
1: But, uh, all right. Thanks, guys, for listening. We, we appreciate, oh, you got more? No, that was it. Yeah. Thanks for listening. We appreciate your time and, uh, we ask you to, to share the different things that you learned, share the, share the podcast, uh, whenever, wherever you listen to them with friends so that we can continue to, to grow. Yep. Let's build our creed together. All right. Let's do it.